Good morning, Faith. An incredible day already. It's, uh, it's just powerful to be with God's people. It's powerful to recount the goodness of the Lord for our own souls. We are here for the praise of his glory, but it does something to us and in us, too, when we acknowledge just how faithful he has been to us. You know, I, I hear a lot in the Christian life of people asking the Lord to do more, and we should. Scripture is full of encouragements for us to go to him, to ask him for things, to lean on him for protection and to have his his praise and his provision in our lives and those kinds of things. But at the same time, isn't there so much he's already done that we can celebrate? The God who is, if he was nothing else more from this point on, has been enough, hasn't he? It's incredible. It's just a great, great thing to be together this morning. Uh, I, I just want to focus on one word that that Jeff Dion shared with us earlier in his incredible presentation and great call and stirring to our men. Really encourage you to take part in the Spiritual Fathers Initiative. I'm just really excited for what this could be for the future of our church. But he keyed in on the word legacy because what we leave behind, what we do before others counts. It really does matter. There's sometimes we, we talk ourselves out of, well, it shouldn't matter what other people think. Or I'm not living my life to perform for other people. And that's true. Everything's true to a certain extent. It's just how much weight we give each of these thoughts, right? We're never supposed to overtip the scales in our thinking. As Christians, we walk in a tension of holding different truths at the same time. And, and on one end of that scale is it shouldn't matter what other people think. That we live our lives before the Lord and their approval isn't what we live for. And that is absolutely true. But on the other hand... We are encouraged and commended to be examples for others. And so both things can be true at the same time. And that impacts our motivation. So his word legacy that he shared earlier, I think is an important one that will bleed through our time in the scriptures this morning as we come to Acts 14. Before we get started, though, I just want to acknowledge a legacy of endurance. Endurance will be our topic this morning. It will come out of Acts 14 in several different ways and hopefully have profound and practical implications for us. But before we get there, I have a personal example of endurance that I just want to briefly acknowledge because I love to embarrass people. It's not easy to be embarrassed. It's not easy to go through embarrassment, but so I love to do it. It's the torture that it inflicts on people is just pleasurable to me. I don't know why. No, not really. Uh, I just believe in acknowledging people publicly and affirming them publicly. And one way that we can demonstrate our endurance is through our vocations, what we do with our our jobs and our work, what we do with our hands and our mind. It takes determination, intention, and skill to survive in the same role for a lengthy period of time. Opportunities to take the easy way out or just to quit when it gets tough, those things present themselves all along the way. But organizations are made better by the few who can stick it out, who can endure to the end and aid that organization in its development over time. So today I want to honor someone who has been exactly that in our midst here at Faith. Because the friendly face at our church for the last 25 years, who has held many aspects of our ministry together, and I mean that, and provided quiet but necessary support just when it was needed, is Dory Sproul. What's the chances I could get you to come up? 
She doesn't have a microphone in her hand. She's very uncomfortable in front, but we love to have her. Would you like to continue reading the rest of your praise? Sure. No. <laughs> that surprised me. Caught me off guard there. All right, come here. Dory has endured many changes over the last 25 years. She's seen our church change locations, change size, change personnel. And every one of those changes she takes to heart and feels every one of them. All right. Now, I'm trying not to get emotional here, but I think the juice expired, as Pastor Tom said. So I'm feeling everything today. Dory has been my colleague for the last 20 years of my time here. She's been my professional support. She's been just like a sister to me. And even times like a mom. And I don't appreciate that. Her and her husband, Jay, love this church and have sacrificed many aspects of their lives to be as committed to us as they have been. And it's for all those reasons and more that the leadership and staff of the church want to bless Dory, and Jay can come along too if you let him, with a little time away as an expression of our incredible, incredible gratitude for all she means to us. And we want to thank you for that, and we want to ask you to be around for another 25 years. I've got the contract in my office, so we can, <laughs> we can settle that up later. All right. Oh, and I forgot. I have something for you down here on the front row. Give me a love you. Hold on. Thank you. Oh, and I asked your mom and dad to be here to witness all of this too. So they snuck in off to the side. So It's a very tight-knit family, and I know they agree with everything I just said about her, and they've experienced it in their lives. And I love Dory's mom and dad, so having them around as much as they can and want to be, I'm all for. Especially we Celtics fans need to stick together, right? All right. Well, like I said at the outset, legacy does come through endurance. And I know that many of you walked into this building this morning kind of hobbled and battered and bruised by the things that life has thrown at you, whether you're a parent or whether you um, rely on the exchange of money to get through life. Maybe you have something you're dealing with in your health or a concern, loss of, uh, of a family member or some, anything else that just seems like an unsolvable problem. Endurance is crucial and critical in the life of the follower of Christ. Like anybody else, we can ask the questions, what point is there in the things that we endure? What, are, what is the way in which this can count for something bigger than the confusion that it adds to my life and the things that I can't make any sense out of? We know from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, everybody suffers. The rain falls on the just and the unjust just the same. That, that tragedy or turmoil isn't like a respecter of persons in that sense. It's how we suffer that separates us from everyone else. Now, we've been seeing in the book of Acts from the hand of Dr. Luke, the, the overview or the, the expansion of the gospel message and the grace of God taking over that region of the world. And it would, it would spread and expand and take root to the extent that we still practice the faith today a couple thousand years later with no signs of it really going anywhere. And what Dr. Luke records for us at every turn, it seems like things are going great. And then someone comes in to try to monkey with it, try to mess it all up. So there's all these signs of opposition and resistance 
And yet the common result we keep seeing from the text is that there's a greater buy-in from those who are conducting the mission, that they raise their determination level, and that there's also a greater harvest of disciples. So the opposition comes in to squash something or to, to, to pack it down and to, and to cause it to die. It only seems to grow and get stronger and people get more tenacious as they follow the ways of the Lord. Luke continues to account, uh, continues his account of how persecution has fanned the flame of gospel power. So what I thought we would do today as we look at chapter 14 is take a little bit deeper dive from the personal aspect of things rather than just a survey of the events. We need to start taking inventory as to what this looks like in our lives. Is 2023 similar to what was going on in the first century? Are the mindsets that we encounter similar to what Paul and Barnabas and others in our text today were encountering? And I believe the answer to that is yes. We're going to take a look to understand what you and I are willing to offer back to the Lord, our good stuff and our bad stuff. What do we bring back to him and say, it hurts, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I don't even really want any of it, but if you can use it, I offer it back to you. When we do that, it'll have a profound effect on us as individuals before him and those around us. Our endurance in suffering, we're going to see in the little bit of time that we have left here is that it will help meet the needs of other people. When you and I embrace that suffering and endure that hardship, we help meet the needs of others, which runs counter-cultural and counter-intuitive to the way that most people live their lives today. Embracing suffering helps fulfill the truest longings of each of our hearts And it reveals the worthlessness of the empty pursuits that we so often give ourselves over to the false gods, small g, that claim so many aspects of our lives and rob us of our very soul. And Lord willing, we'll also see that our sufferings and our endurance and it can help rally the faithful, even as we are often dejected and confused as we're experiencing our own suffering. So first, and and the text is big, we're going to try to take the whole chapter of Acts 14. We actually won't read the last several verses, but still it's all there in the in the flow of things and extracting the main theme of the passage. So I'm going to read this in kind of big swaths as we uh, keep moving through. All right, so let's begin in verse 1 of Acts chapter 14. If you're not familiar with the way that your scripture is laid out, the Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it on the screen here this morning. But if you have a Bible and you're still getting familiar with where to go and everything, it's in the second, uh, it's in the last third of the scriptures and the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then right following those four gospels is the book of Acts. We're in chapter 14. Where Luke says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. Again, that resistance, it always seems to happen. Can't we just let a good thing happen for once? No, there always seems to be resistance. What's the point? Verse three, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, that is those stir, those agitators that were stirring up the resistance, with their rulers, 
I jumped somewhere. Give me a second. And some with the apostles, verse five, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them. It's not just an intellectual um, uh, opposition. It's not just one that makes us feel bad emotionally. This was actually going to hurt the body. Verse six, they learned of it and using their godly wisdom in the moment fled to Lystra and Derby cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse eight. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, there's a lot that we can extract here, but again, because we're going to be moving through a big uh, portion of this chapter, we're going to give this first point some overview, extract some principles from it, and then get to the heart of our time together. Because the first thing that we said was that our endurance through suffering and difficulty will help meet the needs of others. The text tells us that right at the outset that these guys were talking to those that they were ministering to in such a way that they believed. I love how Luke emphasizes. He doesn't just say they were there to minister or to teach them. He says they taught them in such a way that they responded. They were students of their audience as much as they were students of the scriptures. They, they, they not just, they not only, um, learned the right things to say, they actually cared about the manner in which they said them. This is an important principle, even though we can't drill down on it much this morning. It's a very important principle because oftentimes in our desire to be faithful to the Lord and tell others about the hope that we have that lies within us, we get much more concentrated on the words that come out of our mouth from a standpoint of our own obedience to God. I'm being a good boy because I'm telling someone about Jesus that we sometimes forget to take into account the misgivings or the shortcomings or the misunderstandings or the fears of, of the audience in which we're speaking to. And so these guys spoke in such a way that it actually turned their hearts. There's a lesson for us in that. I also believe that's the reason why we should learn our Bibles as much as possible. We've been emphasizing this on Wednesday night with our discipleship growth track. Because as we learn our Bibles and understand its context, it gives us greater kind of a social dexterity that we can say, okay, I can maneuver this conversation in the spot that this person seems to be expressing their greatest need or their greatest question or their greatest concern. It isn't that we would be intimidated not to say anything because we don't know enough Bible, which we often say about ourselves but that we would hunger and grow to learn it so that we can be multifaceted in our approach because it is all God's truth. So the first point I guess I would make here as we're meeting the needs of others is that we would strive to say meaningful things and that we would do it with the willingness to put in the time. Another phrase that we grab from here is it says, so they remain for a long time on the heels of this persecution, this agitation that's stirring up. They recognize it takes a while to correct error. You can't just say something once. You can't just assume the words you just casually threw out there landed in the hearts and the minds of the hearer. And a lot of times people find themselves in error from a place of sincerity. 
They're not actively going, I wonder what lies I can believe today. They're eating lies because they're looking for something that we'll explain here in a bit that God has born within them and they're going to the wrong sources. It takes time. It takes patience to correct error. Paul would later tell us in the passage that we always use at weddings and things that love is patient. Also, I think as we're just doing an overview of this section, we can see that it's important to say true things, but also do good things as you're saying them. What did Paul do? He was there to teach. He was there to preach truth. He was there to show patience and endurance. But when he saw the physical need, the person that could not walk and has never walked, he paid attention. It says he stared at him intently, recognized and perceived that he had the faith to be made whole. And so he acted like who? Jesus. Who at the same time, Jesus would forgive sins and said, but to prove that I can forgive sins, I also want you to take up your bed and you're no longer handicapped or held back by your physical ailment. And he would heal the need of the moment. It's important that we see this because as we are living a life to be outward, Lord, I want others to see you in me. What would he be doing? He would be noticing and observing the individual needs of everybody he encountered. Our message, of course, carries far more weight when we are being practical rather than just performing. We could say it this way, that the gospel is both promising for eternity. God will secure us. He will save us. He will heal us for all for all of uh, time to come and, and beyond time. But it's also practical for today. When we were studying in John, we said that eternal life, that which we, uh, John says, I wrote these things so that you may have life. And that life that we get, we, we knew was eternal life, which starts now. It isn't just something that waits for the moment that we check out. That eternal life rests in our hearts from the time that we believe. So in those first 10 verses, what we're looking at here is a willingness to endure with sometimes difficult people under difficult circumstances to to sometimes strive to craft what could feel like a difficult message or to find the points of pain or interest in people's lives to go through that difficulty. But that endurance will meet the true needs of the people that we encounter. Secondly, as we move on, though, endurance points to the fulfillment of the longings that each of us have and Lord willing that we have found answered in Christ. So in verse 11, we pick back up and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, he looked at that person and said, you can be healed. You're okay. They lifted up their voices saying in a different language than what Paul would have understood at the moment. This is what they were saying to each other. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They're freaking out. They're like the gods, small g, plural, have come to us and they have come in the form of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus. This is the the chiefest of gods. For whatever reason, Barnabas made a great impression on them. So like he's the big dog. Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes is the messenger of the gods. And the priest of Zeus, which was an actual temple and a real thing happening at that time, said, here's my opportunity. We've been waiting for this for a long time. I'm going to lead the people in a real sacrifice because those gods are here amongst us. So he brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
in our modern scientific world now, we look at the primitive beliefs of previous generations and societies and our common modern uh, scientific um, culture would say, well, what else were they to believe? They didn't have any scientific explanations for the things around them. Of course, they were going to call a God uh, by name over everything that they experienced. But I think it's really important to see that, that the only thing that changes from the text 2000 years ago to what we see in 2023 is the names of the gods. They're expressing what they're looking for. It doesn't, we shouldn't get hung up on the names of the gods necessarily, but we should be looking at the expression of their hearts. They are, they are wanting to be pointed to a God of power. That's what scratches their itch. They were believing a legend that had said from one of their poets that said that, uh, Zeus and Hermes came at one point disguised like regular civilians or humble people or beggars or something looking for help to kind of test the people and everyone ignored them except for this uh, little elderly couple Philemon and Baucis I guess is how you would pronounce her name and because the gods were so moved and thankful they passed the test they said your little humble cottage is now going to be the temple and so it flourished and transformed into the temple that they were all worshiping out of everybody else the legend has it the gods wiped out destroyed the entire village so the expression the genuine expression of the hearts of the people while paul and barnabas are trying to minister and put god's glory on display the genuine expression is finally they have returned and we're not going to miss our opportunity to roll out the red carpet for the gods of true power the ones who could do us in if we blow this we're not going to be guilty like the village was uh, sometime before. They're expressing that when they saw what Paul had done, this must be what we've been looking for all this time. And how did they express it? Out of joy that the gods have come down to them in the likeness of men. It isn't just enough to desire a powerful God, but the fact that he might take on a form like something they could recognize or relate to was interesting to them, to put it lightly. It was compelling to them. I think those that study the culture that we live in today would help us understand, study it from a biblical perspective, that what we desire is to be fully known by somebody. Everybody else, we reserve a part of ourself. We hold a part of what we know to be true inside of us just a little bit. Maybe there's somebody on this earth that you share like 99.9% .9 of everything, but there's just this kind of thing of like, I just don't know if somebody would accept me if they knew that. There's an inner desire to say, if, if, if there is a being or a someone who could see all the way through me and know me and I wouldn't have to put up the charade anymore, that would excite me. And not only to be known by a God, but to actually fully know him as well, that I could relate to him, that one came clothed in the same flesh that I wear and walked the same streets that I walk, that there'd be a familiarity uh, between us. This is the expression that's coming out of them all those years ago that we see around us every single day today. And if we're being honest, these are the expressions and the cries of our heart so often as well. Where does this come from? 
Solomon says to us that God has put eternity into man's heart. And this statement has been pondered a lot, has been wrestled with, but I, I think what it's getting at here is that there is something been planted in us that knows there is more than just the physical space that we live in, that there is a craving or a groaning for something more than just what we settle for from human being to human being in our relationships, that all of these things are pictures or pointings towards something greater that we might not know or can't quite express. <clears throat> J.R.R. Tolkien, in his essay on fairy stories, you'll know him as the author of The Lord of the Rings, but he <clears throat> excuse me, also wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories um, because he wanted to make the case to the literary society that would look down on fantasy genre or, non-fic- uh, or fiction genre. He wanted to make the case that the reason why fantasy genre reaches where nonfiction can't go is because it, it, it addresses the inner cravings of the longings that we have as people. This is what he said. He goes, there are four things that fantasy or fiction uh, reach that realistic literature can't. This is what he says. He goes, first off, we uh, acknowledge that we desire to escape the limits of time and death. That if there was something that could let us just kind of fantasize or get into the imagination of, could you imagine if there was never an end, if you never had to die? Or we desire to communicate with non-humans. You ever thought about that? That while we have communication, we're still trying to figure that out right between us. But we also have this draw to want to know or speak to somebody that's outside of our experience or our realm. I even look at it going down a direction with our pets, right? Like you ever looked at your dog and he's doing something. You're like, I wish I knew what he was thinking. Don't do that with your cats. You don't want to know what your cats are thinking. I'm just warning you now. But your dogs might encourage you if you knew what they were thinking. Or sometimes when they're sick, you don't know. It's like if you could just tell me how I could help. But but even more so than just the things that answer to us, we also desire communication. I think that's why everyone's still, you know, whipped up over this idea of like, are there aliens and all these kinds of things. And so where does this stuff come from within us? We desire a love that heals everything. And one that we'll never lose, he says. And lastly, one that we would be all too familiar with. We desire for good to triumph over evil. And I say good like that because it's kind of how we are defining good these days. But everybody wants to see good triumph over evil. In every one of us, there's an awareness of the more beyond this life. And when you and I engage in a heart of endurance, when we say whatever uh, this life has thrown at me, whatever I have to experience, whatever I have to go through, when I do that faithfully, what it reveals to others is I'm looking beyond a plane of just the physical that I can touch, that there's something greater waiting for me. There's something greater that is on my side. There's something greater expecting me to pull through. A heart of endurance connects that inner longing that we all have with hope in the eternal. Let's continue on in our text here. Because endurance exposes the worthlessness of other gods, small g. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men. 
We're of like nature with you. We're bringing you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You notice what he's not saying here is um, we, we're, we're calling you to turn back to the, the rightness of God. We're calling you to repent of your sins so that you'll answer to the one true God. He, he is not going that way with this culture because this culture doesn't understand those things. This is not a Hebrew culture who would need to be challenged that they've walked away from their God and are denying his better purposes for redemption. This is a secular society. See if this starts to ring a bell for us who, who has gods of their own naming and own making. And so he's not going to start this conversation about the things of sin. Do they need to understand their sin? Yes. Do they need to be forgiven of their sins? Yes. Did Jesus come to to solve the problem of sin? Yes. But to open the conversation, he says, I'm going to talk to them about the things they recognize the bigness of all that's around them. They believe in God, S, gods, but they don't understand who he is. He says, I'm calling you to turn from these vain things in verse 15 to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he didn't leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You'd think that would work. But verse 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. They're like, yeah, 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 Mr. Go- Mr. Gods, Mr. Zeus and Hermes and everything. We hear what you're saying, but maybe it's a test because we don't want you to wipe us out again. Maybe you're saying to us, don't worship us. Hey, take all this stuff back to see if we're fickle, to see if we would just go back and say, oh, sweet, we get to keep some of this stuff for ourselves. But we're not buying it. Even though you don't want us to worship you, we're going to keep on pressing in. It's interesting here that Paul's first reaction, I mean, his gut reaction, there was no hesitation, it would seem that they're going to tear their garments, which was a common expression of just outrage and being baffled in those days. And that they would instantly say, stop worshiping us. We're men just like you. Paul was able to quickly dismiss what other accolades might otherwise kind of plant some roots in our hearts. If you walked into the city to do good or you were hoping to make an impact and all of a sudden they said, well, you are exactly what we needed. We celebrate your existence. What can we get you? Hey, dinner's on us tonight and all this sort of stuff. How quickly would that start to tickle our ego and kind of open our ears and make us feel like, hey, this was actually a successful trip because they're celebrating us. But his first reaction was, this is not the way that you should be uh, uh, serving and, and celebrating what's happening here. It has nothing to do with Barnabas and I. Remember in chapter 12 when we were talking about King Herod and he was being all you know, savvy political strategist and he was going to take advantage of the moment. And he gets his best shiny suit out and he calls everybody into the Coliseum and he goes and he gets his best speech prepared. I mean, he knows he's going to knock it out of the park. He, park. he looks good. He's going to sound good. He's got the people literally eating out of their hands because they were starving. They needed him to show up and be their savior. And he stepped right into that glory and said, here am I to rescue you. And what did they say? Kind of in a 
a needy sort of sense, not really a genuine sense. They said, it's like the voice of the gods speaking to us instead of a man. And he just basked in it, let the little glints from his shiny suit blind them. That's right. That's right. And the text tells us when it seems like moments later, he's dead getting eaten by worms. I don't think there was anything in Paul because he is a greatly reduced man since meeting Christ. I don't think there was any even hint of him acting any differently. But it's still important to pause and think about this. I believe what's plaguing the American church like a cancer right now is that people that otherwise are doing good are starting to believe their own press. They're hearing the accolades of people. You're doing a great job or this is really all this kind of stuff. And they're starting to let that sink in. We have celebrity Christians kind of everywhere doing their thing and riding in high on the praise of other people. And it's destroying their impact for the gospel. The thing that we forget sometimes is that the chief act at the center of the gospel is the sacrifice of the king of kings. The one who deserves all the accolades, the one who receives all the praise was the one who sacrificed that to come down to be wrapped in our same skin and to give his life in a brutal fashion to be humbled before us, the God of gods, the king of kings, to sacrifice himself for us. How could we display anything short of humility? We might be able to ask the question this way when it comes to endurance and suffering. Couldn't God be displaying his own character and humility through our suffering? Don't you think God wants the world to know that he was humbled to come to the cross, that he was willing to take on the suffering of mankind to be able to find salvation in him? What if the things that hurt us, what if the things that hang us up, what if the things that slow us down, so we think, are actually there in our lives to present a God who willingly let that happen to him so that they could hear the message of his salvation? This last week, we said goodbye to a sister in the Lord who I think quietly but so enthusiastically presented this aspect of the faith. A humility that was willing to suffer long, even through hardships, and was willing to put some of that on display, not in a showy way. Many of you were close to Lil Bickford and are so blessed by her ministry throughout the years. And we're so reminded or we're so encouraged by the joy that she would bring. And she was some of you, someone you could tease with. And all of my sarcastic giftings, I could just express on her and she wouldn't get offended and And I know so many of you had that relationship with you. Some of you in her last uh, year or so have walked so intimately with her through that journey and have supported her. But she allowed her life to be on display, even the ugly parts of it, within reason. And her husband, Andy, who I knew I would see here this morning because that's who he is, has also quietly displayed that same integrity and that same willingness to shine a light for Jesus in all of this. He's been a dear friend of mine and someone I'm immensely proud to call my friend. And we just see these examples around us because to hold these things back and to go through this suffering privately really robs the church of an example of strength. We don't expect our people or anybody really to do this well. It's too tough to. 
We're going to fail at this. We're going to have our ugly moments. We're going to have our not so shiny parts of our Christian faith. But if we're willing to offer these things up to the Lord, he makes them beautiful and useful. Last week, we looked at Romans 12, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It hurts when it hits our body. That's where things get real for us. When it affects our physical condition, it starts to uh, really feel like it's costing us something and we have some decisions to make. Paul calls us to offer, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Don't discount the sufferings that you carry in your body. Then he gives us kind of the way to enter into this. I dare I say enthusiastically, I don't know. But in verse two, he says, don't be conformed to this world. What would the world see suffering as? inconvenient, somehow a knock on you must be doing something wrong. You haven't achieved enough in life in order to avoid the pain. That's the thinking of this world. But he says, don't be conformed to that garbage. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is answering the mantra of that day in our day with Jesus He says, turn from these vain things. He's nailed it. This is what our culture is enslaved to. This is what we are enslaved to if we're not yielded to Christ, is the emptiness of dead things. In a polytheistic society that is believed in many gods, their belief, even though it would be looked at as primitive to the modern culture today, if they were being honest, they would say, well, they're saying the same thing we say. Believe in what makes you happy. Believe in what brings you, you as the individual, you're in charge, what brings you peace. And then pursue that to the hill. Be true to you, or now it's been shortened, do you. Or we could look at it for what it's really saying. Worship what gives you the advantage. Which is only consistent with a atheistic um, aspect of things. Why would I yield to anybody higher than me? I should have the advantage in all things. Our gods, small g, mirror the cravings of our hearts. They call them Zeus and Hermes, Aphrodite, all these other god names. We call them money. We call them sex. We call them power, pleasure, privilege. And yet at the same time, our culture says things like, well, I'm in control of my own life. It doesn't really matter what I do as long as I'm in control of it. We see this a lot in some of the industries that capitalize in the trafficking of images and your body and sexual stuff and everything like that. As long as I'm in control, then I'm not being taken advantage of by anybody else. But the reality is, is if we are living for fill in the blank, money, sex, power, freedom, any of those kinds of things as my God. We aren't in control. This is why the gospel message is so refreshing in today's culture. And I'm saying this because even though it doesn't seem like it's being received, but if it's presented this way, people do listen. Christ gave up his power. Jesus gave up all the rights that he had to be celebrated, worshiped, and adored in the kingdom of heaven. He left all of that behind to humble himself. Not in a way to come down and say, now you worship me. You bow down before me. He knew we would be terrible at it. 
God knew from the moment that he created man that these guys are not going to be able to figure this out. He gave us um, rules. He gave us practices. He gave us institutions. He gave us all of these things. And yet we still kept blowing it all through the Old Testament. All you hear is they left me for other gods. And we're thinking, why would you do that? He's clearly writing this. He's clearly providing. He's clearly doing all this. But this is what we do. I wish I had a better explanation for you. It's what we do. Apart from the saving grace, the rescuing, the interruption that comes from a Jesus who comes and invades our space and lives in our context, we would have no hope. Rather than demanding we yield all of these drives and all of these compulsions to false God, he says, I'm going to save you. And then as we just sang during communion, from the inside out, I'm going to give you a new focus and a new drive when it comes towards those small G gods. What you yield to me, what you let go of, I am going to use for beauty and freedom in your life. You see, the gospel introduces the only master who gives you more than he takes. I'm going to thank Tim Keller for that one. He inspired that thought this week. Even in his death, he's still uh, helping out an awful lot. The gospel introduces the only master who gives you more than he takes. God satisfies our longings, and yet at some time, if you fail, he'll forgive you. You'll mean well, you'll want to serve him, you'll want to respond to him, and you'll still get it wrong. And he says, I've got an answer for that too. As we heard in our communion time, he delights in forgiving. It's incredible. Last point is that endurance rallies the struggling hope of the faithful around us. Verse 19, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, this is kind of crazy. They were just worshiping these guys, Zeus, Hermes and everything. But they said, we don't want your praise. So they said, fine, this is what we'll do about it. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Stoning is taking giant boulders, crushing your head with it. And they they thought they did the job. They dragged him out thinking he was dead. That's what you do. Bring him out of the city. We don't want his carcass here. Verse 20, when the disciples gathered around him, I'm sure all concerned, freaking out, sad, all those things, he popped up and he entered the city. And on the next day, I just love just Luke's just recording this. And then on the next day, Paul was just being Paul, kept going back in. He went back in. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Tyconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through, catch this phrase, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say we only enter the kingdom of God by our tribulations. This isn't anything we earn. He said, that's your destiny. It's over there. But the road to get there is going to kick your teeth in. That's just the way of it. Or as one of my favorite quotes from the Lord of the Rings, there's nothing for it. It's just the way we're going. There's no antidote. There's no answer for it. There's no alleviation from it. We just have to go through it. The encouragement for us in this funny word to say in all of this, the exhortation, but the encouragement is that you and I need to embrace suffering 
in our mind. Paul's statement of through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. He's just saying, as a matter of fact, like own this fact, that's our path. It's going to hurt. What most people won't do is acknowledge the fact that the pain is coming. They won't allow that to enter into their minds. They would rather dismiss it, pretend, live in a fantasy world that that does, that stuff doesn't enter in my equation. Somehow I can slip through the raindrops. I won't get wet. Paul's motivation was different, as is many of the followers of Christ. He said this in Philippians 3. He said, my goal, my aspiration, everything I'm living for is that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his glory, becoming like him in his freedom, becoming like him in his accolades, becoming like him in his resurrected power and doing all these sorts of things. All those things are there and and promised to us. But Paul's fixation was becoming like him in his death. The reality is you and I can't look like Jesus. We say, I want to just be like Jesus. We can't look like him without having some scars. Because that's what he looks like. So we need to embrace suffering in our mind. We have to endure suffering in our body. Because he rose up, the text says, Paul rose up and entered the city. He went back in. He would later encourage the followers of Christ. He'd say, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And even later on in that passage, he would say, I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. The gospel that you and I preach, the one that we proclaim and live by glorifies a savior that suffered physically on behalf of other people. He endured suffering in his own body and gives us the courage and the ability to do the same for whatever reason, as we come to Christ and we are saved, we are not promised an existence that is free of pain. We will experience pain for the rest of our, our human lives because it points to the day when all of that goes away. And it speaks to so many other things. It encourages other people in our midst. It said that he used this experience in this story to strengthen the disciples, encouraging them to continue. This is why it's so important that our lives be on display. Some of the writings of generations of Christians gone by would emphasize and they would say, if you want to see what makes us different as Christians, look to how well we suffer and die. 2023, could the church collectively say, if you want to see that we really mean business with our faith, you watch how we handle endurance and suffering and pain and difficulty and loss. This was a hallmark of the faith because it most pointed to the Savior that we followed. What are we saying this morning? We're we're saying that the world around us doesn't have any good examples outside of biblical Christianity on how to get ready for suffering and death. Our world is living in a fantasy world by and large that these things aren't supposed to happen to you. If you do the right things, you make the right plans, you spend the right amount of money, you get the right looks, all that sort of stuff, you're not going to experience all these things, but it's lying. And they're waking up to the reality of the emptiness, the vanity of that lie. They become too too fixated. And I, and I say they, I'm not saying like they, like we don't ever fall into this because this is us too. They become too fixated on happiness and peace in the here and now. 
how the child of God, that's you and me, Lord willing, how the child of God draws on his grace to endure suffering is the loudest example of hope that anyone can ask for. The only thing that stands between us and God's power is our surrender to the reality that it's coming, the inevitability that it's going to find us to, and the willingness to use it to display the glory and the humility of God. We are meant to bear the marks of Jesus. But this is the amazing part in all this, that we don't have to do it alone. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit, one who walks with us. It's, scripture refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, Jesus himself walking through this pain and enduring this suffering. That same Spirit rests in us. Those same resources to endure are available to us. So we have him. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He's quick to forgive us. He's quick to mend us. But we also have each other. We lost a sister that so many of us loved and continue to love. We have a brother that will continue to love in all of this. The difficulty that we have is being aware in the needs and the sufferings of others and saying, you know, it doesn't imp- what, the stuff in my life isn't holding me back. I'm reaching out. I'm being available to somebody else. And putting Jesus on display as we shine like stars in his, in his whole atmosphere of what he's doing in the world around us. Would you please stand? Let's bring these things before the Lord. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy that understands our weakness. You know, Lord, from personal experience that the first infliction of pain, the natural response that we would have is not to be happy that it's arrived, not to put on a brave face to pretend like it isn't there, but to feel what we're experiencing. And so, Lord, in your understanding of our humanness, you've made a way. You've made a way for us to press into that and beyond it. So, Lord, I pray that all the things in our lives, the good and the bad, we would make available, we would surrender them to the cause of your glory. Offer them up to your purposes, Lord, and let you use them in whatever way you wish. Whatever you see is wisest. Help us, Lord, not to be in control of the outcomes of our lives, the outcomes of our circumstances, Lord, because we know we're not. So we yield them to you. We thank you in them. We don't put on phony, happy faces, Lord. We're just thankful. Thank you, Lord, for being near to us. And Lord, the sufferings that are represented in this room, I can't begin to know all of them or even have experienced them. But you have. You understand every last one of them. And you're present and you're kind and you're gentle. Lord, you can be trusted. Help us, Lord, to learn to run to your open arms as our first reaction, as our first response. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.